Welcome back to the Machine Learning Street Talk YouTube channel and podcast. So today we have an incredibly special guest, Professor Carl Friston. It was one of the most fascinating conversations we've ever had on Street Talk. This is an old school professor. He went to Cambridge in 1980 and he's one of these kind of um, eccentric polymath types that, you know, sits on the, the, the old kind of Chesterfield chair with all of the springs coming out and, you know, uh, smoking a pipe or something like that. It, Professor Friston is most well known, certainly in the machine learning domain, for his free energy principle or activity inference which is a kind of reinforcement learning flavor of that if you like but he's got an incredible background he is an expert in psychiatry and cognitive neuroscience and physics and Bayesian statistics and it, it's so strange just to have all of this knowledge embodied in one person so it really was quite an interesting conversation actually now the free energy principle has been called a postulate a natural law an imperative an unfalsifiable principle. It's been called many things. It aims to give an almost universal understanding between the mind, life, and the environment. So how did the free energy principle come about? The free energy principle, as you have just described it, started really when I was a student, aspiring to put together maths and psychology. So it gets back to mathematical formalisms, the, you know, the, the principles that underlie the sentient behavior with which we are gifted. And the product of that was the, uh, the free energy principle. The free energy principle sets the foundation for planning as inference by explicitly modeling the world and its states as beliefs. It balances accuracy with entropy, which maintains the flexibility needed to continually adapt to future outcomes and explorations. But the more interesting game is, I think, better cast in terms of planning as inference, enabling you to roll out much further into the future and ask, well, what would happen if I did that? What would my beliefs be about the state of the world in the long-term future? So I think prediction in its full and glorious anticipatory sense really takes centre stage. Features of reality itself, such as self-organized behavior, and even quantum, they seem to require some kind of probabilistic Bayesian uh, belief update on world states. For example, the path integration formalism from Richard Feynman, it essentially averages over many probabilistically weighted paths, in other words, functions over beliefs, and has proven crucial to the subsequent development of quantum electrodynamics. Come down to this part of the mirror and bounce off and I'm not to understand the first principles that underlie sentient behavior, you have to understand the dynamics of self-organization, in particular self-organization of systems that are open to the environment. That comes in through Feynman's path integral formulation and thinking not just about the flow or the dynamics of self-organization at this point in time, but trajectories into the future and the probability distributions over those trajectories, and particularly the states that act upon the outside. And then things get much more interesting. You can interpret this in terms of inferring the most likely paths, basically as resting upon a prediction of states of the world in the future conditioned upon a particular sequence of actions or policy. The heart of the free energy principle, and what sets it apart from alternatives, is the strict balance between accuracy and simplicity. 
evidence and entropy. One of the things that I think is very interesting about the free energy formulation is that prediction is half the story. So getting accurate predictions about the future, while very important, is juxtaposed with keeping your options open, keeping a flexible mind, keeping a high entropy model of the world so that as you encounter perhaps new situations, it has the flexibility to adapt. In the central role of relative entropies in this sort of variational construct, I think that you know, formally that is so important in minimizing the free energy, you're also trying to maximize the entropy, which seems sometimes counterintuitive, but it is exactly that which is really mandated by things like Occam's principle and, and very practically relevant. So if you don't do that, if you don't put that uncertainty in, into the games, then you're going to run into things like sharp minima and you're going to be searching for resolutions of that in terms of broadening your uncertainty, flattening that free energy landscape to, to try and secure those flat minima where you can be more reasonably assured that you've got some global minima, say in standard deep learning or, or a machine learning context. So this led Friston to believe that goal-directed behaviour, essentially planning based on goals, is insufficient. We need to have a more sophisticated system that can reason about the uncertainty of our beliefs. We see echoes of this in machine learning. We spoke to Kenneth Stanley recently about novelty search, and in his formalism he explicitly avoids objectives, and he thinks that we should use novelty because of the inherent deception in objective search. Similarly, in classic machine learning, we use regularization to stop the machine learning algorithm overfitting the training set. Friston argues that the free energy principle combines all of these different paradigms. We're getting quite close to the centre of the bullseye here, and we're talking about the dichotomy between belief-free and belief-based methods. Now, you said in your papers that goal-directed behaviours is fine for learning kind of basic habitual policies. Of course, normally there's this value function that needs to be either computed directly in the non-stochastic setting using the Bellman equations or, or, or some other method. But, but your approach is a, is a stark departure away from having this value function. Again, you're, you're, you've said everything that I could possibly say, so, so I'll send you on my next lecture tour. That, that, that'll, that'll take the pressure off me. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, I forgot to just to highlight this sort of exploitation, exploration dilemma that has dogged 20th century thinking, minimizing this mixture that just is the, the expected free energy. You, you, you've got exploration and exploitation solved for free in the right order. So you normally see if there's food in the fridge before you start preparing your, your meal. You don't do it the other way around. And you said it. You said that the Bellman optimality principle is only fit for purpose if there exists a value function of states that will ensue if I commit to that action. Let's talk about Markov blankets. Markov blankets are probably the one piece of jargon which you're going to hear today more than any other term. We have an innate common sense notion of things and the boundaries that separate them. However, capturing this mathematically is more difficult than we might expect. The Markov blanket concept formalizes these notions and underpins the free energy principle. One of the pivotal concepts in the free energy principle is Markov blankets. Tell us about yeah. them. They're relatively straightforward. If you imagine um, here on our screen, we're showing an image and, and if every single one of these little disks that you see there was a state. And if you have a system that can be partition, then the red dots that are in the middle are the thing itself. The blue dots that are outside 
are the universe at large, the external environment, and the yellow and orange dots in between form the Markov blanket. And what the Markov blanket requirements are is that the red is able to interact with orange, okay? Orange is able to interact with yellow, and yellow is able to interact with the blue. But what we don't have is we don't have blue being directly affected and vice versa by by red. So we don't have this. So instead, we have this these boundary sets. We partitioned all the state space into an internal group, the red ones, an external group, the blue, in these blanket states that sit in between the two and facilitate the interaction between external and internal. And why these are important for the free energy principle is they set up these conditional independencies, which say that the blue states, as long as I know yellow and orange, they're independent informationally from the red states. And likewise, the red states, so long as I know the blanket states are independent of the external ones. And yet, future conceptions might rely on even more general concepts that allow for Markov blankets, like, for example, wandering sets. I'd like to explore that, as you put it, maliciously engineered false dichotomy uh, a little bit further, but in a different context. And it's one of the Markov blanket. For example, you were with uh, Sean Carroll uh, not long ago, and I think he asked, uh, does a hurricane have a Markov blanket? And and you said, well, no, it doesn't. And that's that's quite annoying, actually. That if it's enough of a boundary, enough of a blanket, if you will, I can still think about in useful ways. Is that true? I mean, do we really need an exact Markov blanket, or is it flexible enough that it can be quite a fuzzy boundary? It's a excellent question and the honest answer is I, I don't really know at this stage but what is known uh, and in not knowing that I mean that in a positive way that this is a future challenge I think people will contend with in the next few years so in an idealized formulation the Markov blanket exists at non-equilibrium steady state so it exists in eternity in a very crisp and well-defined way that there are specific conditional independences that allow for a vicarious coupling between the inside and the outside. So it's the device that gets you out of 20th century equilibrium physics, that we're not talking about closed systems anymore, we're talking about uh, non-equilibrium steady states. So we're, we're really in the sort of the things that people like Sean Carroll and a lot of other people are contending with at the moment, the physics of open systems and self-organizing systems. And the Markov Planck plays an incredible, incredibly crucial role here in demarcating the edge of the system, as it were, that allows you to identify something. Stuff on the inside of the Markov blanket has to have a kind of synchrony with stuff on the outside. And in virtue of those conditional dependencies that stipulatively define the Markov blanket, you can now treat the internal states as parameterizing probability distributions or belief distributions about external states. So there's quite a fundamental bit of information geometry that you bring to the table when you have a Markov blanket, that suddenly you can interpret the machinations on the inside in your computer or your variational autoencoder or your brain as having beliefs of a Bayesian sort about what caused these data, what's going on the outside. So the Markov blanket is absolutely central. Everything inherits from the Markov blanket. So to move on to your more challenging question, 
does a hurricane or the eternal flame have a Markov blanket? Strictly speaking, no, it doesn't, because you've got this fuzzy leaking. It is, from the point of view of somebody who's wanted to simplify things as a physicist, very irritating. But of course, it's also incredibly important and challenging. So where would you go to try and understand these fluctuating blankets where you have exchanges and i worry about this every time i cut my fingernails or have my hair cut <laughs> at what point did my Markov blanket become an external state so there's clearly there's clearly a bit of work to be done mathematically to accommodate markov blankets as themselves dynamical and random objects my guess is that you're going to probably go back to the work of Urkov, who was the, sort of one of the key intellectual architects of ergotistic and ergodic theory. And he was at one point preoccupied by the notion of wandering sets. So if we think of the Markov blanket as a partition of all the states of the universe into lots and lots of particles that comprise the internal states and their Markov blankets. And if you consider that partition into particles, as a partitioning into subsets and then you bring wandering sets into play you can now start to see a mechanics and a mathematics where you can now actually explain things like hurricanes and candles 3d printers printing themselves is a species of 3d printers one big markov blanket or do, do i right. drill down and just say markov blanket only really exists for the lifetime of a 3d printer so all of these issues, I think, speak to exactly what you're drilling down on, which is how can you accommodate fluctuations and, if you like, physics of non-equilibria, not of states of a universe, but of the blanket or the partitions that define the, you know, the Markov blankets. Does the free energy principle conform to itself? If we can imagine into the future, maybe, and, and if in the spirit of the free energy principle, we maintain uncertainty about the free energy principle. Well, yeah, that's very clever. Yes, uh, yeah. So I often say in moments of vanity and pride that the free energy principle is one of the very few principles that conforms to itself. It's trying to provide a, an accurate but minimally complex explanation for everything. And the only other thing that I know that conforms to itself is the principle of natural selection in the sense that the theories of natural selection themselves evolved at the Parian Third World. And in that sense, uh, this notion that the free energy principle should accommodate a judicious amount of uncertainty about itself is absolutely right, yeah. That's a very, very clever observation. Friston would argue that certain states of the world and certain states of knowledge would kind of transform themselves conforming to probability theory. The free energy principle implies that non-equilibrium steady-state systems must directly model such states of knowledge and maintain them according to the rules of probable inference in order to continue existing. In other words, survival fitness requires inference. We had this very interesting point from Connor about there may be game theoretic pressures, let's say, to drive down accuracy in, in some sense. The free energy principle is a lot about the idea of we want to gain information to create a better, more accurate model of the world around us. But there are situations in game theory and decision theory where that's actually not fitness enhancing. You might not want to learn the face of your kidnapper because he's more likely to kill you. Yeah, that's a fascinating area. And I, I see those, those those sort of themes in many different contexts. I had never heard that before about not wanting to know the face of your, your kidnapper. 
but that's a, a beautiful example. It really does tell you that objective functions have to be about beliefs and the consequences of belief states, not states of the world. So if there's one example that tells you you're not going to serve up with the Bellman optimality principle, that's going to be it. But it also tells you that many of these real world problems have to contend with the fact that the kind of external states that you are dealing with are composed of sentient creatures like you and that they also have beliefs. So Keith, why don't we talk about the main formalism for the free energy principle? Sure. So uh, the free energy principle comes down to, to the equation that we're showing here on, on the screen, which is that the free energy is the summation of, of two important pieces. The energy, which is a measure of how well your model fits the observations or the evidence that you're observing. And then the second piece, which in a lot of ways is really the more important piece of the free energy is the entropic contribution. And so that's the KL divergence, if you will, between your model of the world and then the actual uh, hidden model of the world. And the divergence between those two, it has two important pieces to it. And I want to kind of call out, I want to highlight one here, which let's circle right there. That's purely the the model entropy, okay? Um, so that's actually the the negative of the model entropy in the in the KL divergence. And so as the model gains greater and greater entropy, and note that that's a, a positive quantity there, okay? Then up in the free energy, it's being subtracted from the free energy. So the higher the entropy of your model the lower the free energy. So as you're trying to minimize free energy, you've got two competing criteria. One is to fit observations better and better, but that will require more and more complex models, which will have lower and lower entropy, and therefore they will be subtracting less from the free energy. So what you're trying to do is find the model that fits the data well, while also maintaining a high entropy. And the reason why that's important for survival is that if you have a higher entropy model, it's maintaining greater flexibility to adapt to incoming information. So if you recall log evidence and any associated bounds like free energy or an elbow, an evidence low bound in machine learning can be written as, a, as the accuracy minus the complexity. And the complexity is just the divergence between your posterior and your prior belief distributions. So that is a really and possibly the more important part of the free energy the accuracy is well understood but doing it in a minimally complex and a maximally compressed way that, that that's the heart of it so recall the complexity is just the relative entropy between the prior and the posterior it is the degree to which you change your mind in the face of this new data or this new sensory evidence the free energy principle equally weights accuracy and complexity might it be the case that we need to have a temperature parameter, like a kind of knob to tweak the relative contribution between accuracy and complexity? Would such a parameter be useful? What I'm wondering is in the free energy principle term with the complexity, I'm wondering if maybe there should be a multiplier there, like an alpha, something like a Boltzmann constant that allows me to tweak the relative balance between accuracy and complexity. There are two answers to that question. First of all, absolutely not. The whole, the whole point of 
dissolving that exploration exploitation dilemma the whole point of putting the information gain in the same space and in the same currency and on the same footing as your lock prior preferences your reward your utility your bellman-esque like imperatives is that there is a seamless exchange in terms of nats natural units between the decomposition of your expected free energy in terms of this intrinsic value and this extrinsic utilitarian pragmatic value the other answer is absolutely yes um, but in order to in order to um, acknowledge that if you're just trying to explain the necessary properties dynamics of systems that self-organize to some non-equilibrium steady state you are saying nothing about the nature of that steady state other than it is at steady state so it could be very high entropy steady state it could be very low entropy steady state it could be very hot it could be very cold you haven't really committed to any kind of uh, steady state which means that it's slightly disingenuous to say that the imperative for everything is to minimize say a free energy functional and if you parameterize that with a particular parameter and we will call it alpha as a nod to your question then suddenly you really do need this alpha and this alpha gets in exactly as you say as a knob on the expected complexity versus the expected accuracy or ambiguity that's not in the literature so there are ongoing debates amongst the younger people who love the maths of this about whether we just need a generic KL divergence or whether we need to exclude bits to get to expected free energy. You have to really think about the relative importance for this steady state of technically the risk and the ambiguity and the sensory entropy. So that's again, that's a bit of an open question, which I'm hoping will be resolved in about a year's time, at which point your alpha will occur, and I'll try to call it alpha in your honour. One of the previous guests to our show, Dr. Hari Valpola, the CEO of Curious AI and a computational applied neuroscientist, he sent us in a couple of questions for Friston, actually, and the, the answer was quite interesting. But the crux of it is the brain is highly specialized right and is the free energy principle an oversimplification for what's going on in the brain if you take a young child around nine months old the critical period for learning the phonemes of your mother tongue and you play some speech from the radio the result is nothing but if you play the same speech during a social interaction the child will learn to discriminate uh, the phonemes in the speech structure matters structures of the brain being very finely attuned to and adapted to the context in which they're, they're making their inferences. One would normally cast that in terms of structure learning, also known as Bayesian model selection. So this notion speaks to a simple understanding of evolution or as nature's way of doing natural Bayesian model selection, i.e. natural selection, where you operationally associate the adaptive fitness with the probability this phenotype exists, which is just the evidence that it is there, the probability of finding that phenotype in place. You know, that it is, on some reading, provably true that for any system or agent to regulate its environment, it has to embody or be a good model of that environment. What does that mean? Its structure must somehow recapitulate the structure of the environment generating that it has to control or it has to engage with. So it is hardly unsurprising that 
the delicate, deep, hierarchically structured connectivity we find in a brain and in a variational autoencoder is a natural thing that has emerged from the evolution of these architectures that all are conforming with the principle of free energy minimization. What about Daniel Kahneman's System 1 and System 2 of cognition? Do those fit into the free energy principle? He cites Kahneman's System 1 and System 2 of thinking. Yeah, there's this famous test where if you give monkeys a sequence of cards with a hidden pattern on, uh, which need to be classified into two classes, humans suddenly click. They see the hidden rule because their System 2 kicks in and, and they start getting 100% accuracy very quickly. But you don't see that with monkeys. So Valpola was saying that he doesn't see how that phenomenon could be explained by the free energy principle recent thinking about the cerebellum is that it plays the role of actually a supervisor. So it may well be the case that the cerebellum plays a role in the amortization of carefully acquired skilled movements that become increasingly skilled as the cerebellum watches the cortex. In that sense, the cerebellum can, I think, be very usefully understood in terms of being involved in supervised learning, but I'd actually turn it on its head and basically say it's being supervised by the cortex, but in a way that allows the, the cerebellum to tell the cortex, well, normally you do it like that. Do we do our belief updating and a bit of planning as inference, or do we just do what we've always done, habitually respond quickly and efficiently by harnessing something that has already been amortized? And that, I think, is a really interesting interpretation of habitization versus deliberative thinking, which from the point of view of a neuroscientist would be the equivalent of system one versus, versus system two. In that sort of edge between machine learning and reinforcement learning, sometimes referred to as model-free versus model-based. So it's the bread and butter of a jobbing neuroscientist, certainly a systems neuroscientist, to understand the computational architectures and the nature of message passing implied by either belief updating or predictive coding or variational message passing, how it is enacted physiologically on a neuroanatomy that has a deep structure. Connor asked Friston about predictive coding. There has been a paper that says that predictive coding can approximate backpropagation in arbitrary graphs. I'm sure a friend of mine has, has contributed to that. And if there's any sense that prop has been demeaned as something which is not <laughs> absolutely central to, to everything, then I think that's probably wrong. So from my perspective, it is invariably the case that the gradients with respect to anything of variation-free energy can be written down as an, a prediction error. Which means that if you believe that the universe of interesting things is performing a gradient flow on a variational free energy functional, then you also believe that they are, by the chain rule, minimizing their prediction error. I think that's one of the first times that neuroscientists actually say something positive about backprop. And does the free energy principle tell us anything about the origin of life? For example, abiogenesis. If we take for granted that the free energy principle explains a great deal about how certain systems of the kind we've been elucidating will function. Does it explain the origin of those systems? Is it almost unavoidable that we will end up with these deeply structured 
delicate Markov blanketed systems that become increasingly rich and have longer and longer information lengths and more itinerant dynamics as the universe unfolds. It would be great to know the answer to that and to have a tractable mathematical formulation of that. I'm afraid though that the free energy principle in its vanilla form as it currently stands does not give you that. No, all it says is if that thing has evolved, these are the properties that it must possess. But at least it can tell us we should continue exploring and looking around to address that uncertainty. Yes, clever, yes, of course. Some meta-free energy principle. Next, we're going to talk about Richard Feynman's path integral. This is something that Friston referred to many times during the session today. Yeah, so path, the path integral formulation, let's say, of which is essential for quantum electrodynamics, for one thing, is quite interesting. And actually, it should be familiar in, in one sense to, to let's say, uh, Bayesians or people who do a lot of conditional probability theory, because they may recall that the probability of, say, a particular event um, is actually equal to the summation of the probability of that of that event given, like, let's say, some other state of the world, okay, over all possible states of that A. In other words, this is marginalization or the marginal probability. If you have a bunch of possible worlds what you have to do is sum over all possible worlds. And when that's applied to physics, say in the case of quantum electrodynamics, what it's saying is that if you have many possible ways in which, let's pretend that photon could come from A and end up over at B, it could travel along any one of these many paths here, that if you're considering the total probability of that actually happening, you have to sum over all these possible states waiting by their amplitude. And that's a, a very beautiful consequence because in some realist sense, we don't think that the photon, say, travels every one of those possible paths, but it's as if it did. And why this is important in the free energy principle is that when we live in a universe where you have to perform this summation over all possible worlds, that means that inherently we need a system that can model probabilities and can transform those probabilities accurately according to the laws of probability theory. And another interesting consequence of it is that if we're playing this repeated game where we're trying to survive over time and we're getting in new information all the time about these many possible future paths, we have to model the world in a flexible way. We have to keep an, an entropic model, a model that has a high entropy that's able to adjust as new information comes in about those probable paths. How, how did he find it talking to uh... Professor Friston. Oh, I, I really, I have to say, I very much enjoyed talking to Professor Friston. When I went into the preparation for this call some weeks back, I would say I was probably more skeptical of the free energy principle than I am now. But as we've learned a lot over the last few weeks, and then really having a chance to pose some questions uh, to Professor Friston and hear his answers, uh, yeah, I think this is a, a very interesting principle. Uh, and I think it's, I think we'll find increasingly as we become more sophisticated with both the modeling of the principle and the application of the principle that we are going to find many systems that, that conform to it. Um, so I find it quite interesting and, and completely enjoyed talking to him. I, I wish I lived next door to him. I'd probably hop over there once in a while to have a sherry and just discuss deep topics. 
he has such an intuitive understanding of, of deep topics that it's sometimes hard to keep pace, but if you can, it's, it's very fun. Yeah, because if you look at the free energy principle on Wikipedia, it even says at the top of the article that it's very complicated. Even experts in the field just have trouble getting their heads wrapped around it. And when you listen to Professor Friston talk, he clearly is a polymath. He has deep knowledge of so many different fields. And it's really interesting to have all of that embodied in one person because the level of cross-pollination is really quite impressive. But by the same token, there's so much jargon and he's diving into so many different areas that it does make it quite difficult to follow what he's talking about. I think that Wikipedia's got it wrong that it's complicated. I think that we often make the mistake of thinking that things that are hard to understand are inherently complicated. And I think that's wrong. I think simple and easy are very, very different concepts. It's possible for simple concepts to be very difficult to understand and indeed to take human civilization thousands of years to discover. And I think this, I think the free energy principle falls under the category of simple, but very difficult to understand, very deep, deep concepts, almost like some of the concepts that rest at the foundation of mathematical logic or probability theory. You know, when you start to think about puzzles like this sentence is false, right? Or if you think about what is the meaning of probability? Is, is it a frequency? Is it a degree of rational belief? Why or why not? You know, these are very deep concepts. At the end, they can be expressed relatively simply on paper, but still be very difficult to understand. Thank you very much for your questions. They're very informed questions. I got a sense you knew the answers before you asked them. But... <laughs> That's how I felt. <laughs> anyway, we really hope you've enjoyed the episode today. We've had so much fun making it. Remember to like, comment, and subscribe. We love reading your comments, and we'll see you back next week. The like New Yorkers are rude and blunt. You know, they're, they're, they're very direct and they're, and they're assholes about it. Well, Germans are polite but blunt. Like, Germans will very politely tell you your code is completely unacceptable. But they'll be very polite about it. It's kind of slightly similar to uh, Southern culture or classic Southern culture in the U.S. It's very polite but straightforward. Like, they don't like beating around the bush. You know? But I would say they don't go as far to the rude spectrum while being blunt. Like, they still are <laughs> straightforward like, like, but politely. I've, I'm super sensitive to people beating around the bush. I yeah, can't stand that's it. it. That's why it was funny that when you told me you were like a trader in New York, I was like, yeah, this makes a lot of sense. Like straightforward and polite. I love Germans. I worked with a few of them in my lab and uh, in graduate school. And I, like, I also like how rule-based they are. Like <laughs> there are rules and you follow the rules. When you open <laughs> the door, you close the door. You close it. You don't leave it half open. It's like, I love it. It's true. It's true. It's both a blessing and a curse. I used to work with some radioactive dyes and I disposed of one in the wrong container. So I disposed of like the beta in the alpha container or something. And it caused like a cost, like a couple hundred dollars or something. The German postdoc there was so like pissed at me, but polite. (laughs) He's like, just keeps going on and on about how can you put A in the B container, right? That's just not how it happens that should have never happened i don't know what we should do about this but something needs to happen to make sure you never do that again yeah that is such a german thing i've heard that exact conversation with people before he would keep 
I just wouldn't let this go. I'm like, yeah, I'm sorry. I, I screwed up. You know, it wasn't a good enough explanation. It was like, <laughs> what is broken that we need to fix so this never happens again? You know? That is the most German thing I've ever heard. Hello, hello. Hi there. Hello, hello Professor Friston. Great to meet you. Nice to see you. Fantastic. Now, I'm not an expert on etiquette. Is it Dr. Friston or Professor Friston? Which is more correct? In England, it would be Professor Friston. Okay. Uh, in the States, I think I've heard that teachers are called professors, so they prefer to be called doctors. But it, right. In, in the oh. UK, it's professor. Gotcha. And tech industry is first names only. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back to the Machine Learning Street Talk YouTube channel and podcast with my two compadres, Connor Leahy and MIT PhD, Dr. Keith Duggar. Now, today we have a very special guest. Professor Friston. He is a British neuroscientist at University College London and an authority on brain imaging. He studied natural sciences, physics and psychology at the University of Cambridge in 1980 and completed his medical studies at King's College Hospital in London. A strong indicator of Professor Friston's illustrious career is that he's been cited over 260,000 times with an H index of 239. In 2016, he was ranked the most influential neuroscientist on Semantic Scholar, and Carl Friston pioneered and developed the single most powerful technique for analyzing the results of brain imaging studies. He's currently a Wellcome Trust Principal Fellow and Scientific Director of the Wellcome Trust Center for Neuroimaging. His main contribution to theoretical neurobiology is the variational free energy principle, also known as active inference in the Bayesian brain. The free energy principle is a formal statement that the existential imperative for any system which survives in the changing world can be cast as an inference problem. The probability of existing as the evidence that you exist, if you will. You can always interpret anything which exists as being separate to the environment it exists in. Carl asserts that existence is a kind of interface between the interior and the exterior. So the free energy principle, which is closely related to the Bayesian brain hypothesis, is a simple postulate with complicated implications. Any adaptive change in the brain, or indeed any system which exists, will minimize surprise or free energy, as Carl puts it. This minimization could be on any timescale or on any system which resists a tendency to disorder from single cell organisms to social networks. The Bayesian brain hypothesis states that the brain is confronted with ambiguous sensory evidence, which it interprets by making inferences about the hidden states which caused the sensory data. So is the brain an inference engine? The key concepts separating Friston's idea from traditional stochastic reinforcement learning methods and even Bayesian reinforcement learning methods is moving away from goal-directed optimization. Belief-based updating combines the ambiguous information with prior beliefs about the nature of the world. The missing information problem is something which dogs many areas of machine learning, as we discussed on our GPT-3 episode last week. Implementing the Bayes rule directly is often computationally intractable, and computer scientists drew inspiration from the physics world for creating approximate inference techniques called variational Bayesian methods. And Carl's active inference method uh, uses these techniques to great effect. Anyway, Professor Friston, it's an absolute honor to have you on the show. Welcome. And how did you come up with this exciting principle? Well, 
First of all, let me congratulate you on that beautiful introduction. You've said everything that I could possibly say in the next hour and a half. <laughs> so, um, so I'll just try and recapitulate what you said. The road to the free energy principle, as you have just described it, started really when I was a student, aspiring to put together maths and psychology. So in those days, it would have been known as mathematical psychology. Nowadays, computational neuroscience and leading of computational neuroscience into machine learning. So from the start, that was the ambition. More practically, though, as your brief resume indicated, I got a bit distracted by becoming a doctor and then a psychiatrist, uh, out of clinical compassion, but also partly out of an interest in understanding how the brain works. And then inevitably, one gets back to mathematical formalisms, the, you know, the the principles that underlie the sentient behaviour with which we are gifted. And the product of that was the uh, the free energy principle or active inference in a sort of more cognitive neuroscience uh, setting. I'd like to ask you about two kind of related topics that have interested in machine learning lately. One is, is I was interested if you were familiar with the work of Jeff Hawkins from Numenta, who is a unsung hero among machine learning inspirations. And he had a quote saying, it is the ability to make predictions about the future that is the crux of intelligence. And recently, with uh, machine learning progress, such as with GPT-3, which, you know, is a better and better predictive model, and some would argue, including myself, also becomes more and more intelligent in a meaningful way. So my question is, is prediction really all it takes for intelligence, or is there more to it? I think prediction figures very centrally in the sort of dynamics that we're talking about. I can answer that question from two perspectives, often cast in terms of the high road and the low road to that formal understanding of things like active inference. So the the low road would really be a bottom-up approach, thinking, what does the brain do? And on that view, or on that approach, the the, the big move in the 21st century has been towards predictive processing. Um, It started with predictive coding as a nice metaphor for message passing in the brain, now generalized to subsume action and decision-making and choices and epistemic foraging. Uh, So Andy Clark coined the the phrase predictive processing to, to accommodate that. And in that sort of formulation of sentient behavior, prediction is absolutely essential at two levels. And from the point of view of predictive coding, obviously, it's baked into the title that, that you're you're trying to predict what you will see under some belief about the sort of latent states generating some data, or you could formulate that in terms of compression, minimizing message length, and efficient making sense of data or unpacking data. The prediction in that sense is, I think, not quite the kind of prediction that you're asking about, which is uh, which has this sort of temporal aspect, sort of the forecasting or anticipatory aspect of prediction. However, once you move predictive coding into a sort of Bayesian filtering setting and you put dynamics in play, then when you're trying to predict the trajectories in the moment, you are implicitly predicting a short-term future. So I think sort of prediction in the dynamical or the temporal sense starts to bite again. Beyond that, there is, in the neurosciences, an appreciation that that's not the end of the game. You can get a long way uh, on this low road of understanding in terms of understanding how we act and perceive and how action is in the service of perception and vice versa through treating motor behavior, responses, 
of an embodied brain in terms of reflexes. And this would be very much a predictive coding explanation of the action perception cycle, essentially equipping predictive coding with reflexes of this sort of in-the-moment sort you know, that you could write down in terms of differential equations or a Kalman-Busey filter. But the more interesting game is, I think, better cast in terms of planning as inference. So actually including what I'm doing as a random variable in your inference problem and enabling you to roll out much further into the future and ask, well, what would happen if I did that? What would my beliefs be about the state of the world in the long-term future? And that gives a very different aspect to prediction that you're predicting the consequences of any move on the world, of any data that you might want to sample. How will that reduce my uncertainty? What information will I gain? What relevance does that have for the kinds of preferred outcomes that characterize me as a goal-directed creature? So I think prediction in its full and glorious anticipatory sense really takes centre stage. And when people talk about active inference, it's sort of implicitly they're talking about this sort of fuller, deep temporal approach to inferring what should I do next? And then from those inferences, selecting the next move to, to make. So in that sense, you know, the sort of the hierarchical temporal models that uh, Dalip and, and Jeff Hawkins have, have been talking about for you know, decades as far as I, mean, I can remember reviewing as a handling editor the first publication in plus computational biology on, the, on this work, and it was refreshing. Um, I think that that's exactly uh, the, the kind of hangers inference in the future, consequent on or conditioned upon the different kinds of policies or sequential uh, sequences of actions that, that I could entertain, bringing time centre stage in, into the inference problem. The high road, I should just add, so using a completely different language now that I would use as a physicist, to promote the importance of prediction, takes a slightly different view. It says, well, to understand the first principles that underlie sentient behavior, you have to understand the dynamics of self-organization, in particular, self-organization of systems that are open to the environment, to their eco-niche, to their heat bath, their heat reservoir. And when one does that, you can use uh, dynamics and random dynamical systems to say the kind of moves and, and, and changes of the systemic states must have this uh, form of uh, predictive coding or Bayesian or Kalman-like filtering in the moment. And that's relatively straightforward to show. And there was a hint of the requisite mathematical apparatus you need to make those assertions in the introduction, and specifically Markov blankets that separate me from not me. So that would be grade one, if you like, uh, prediction. It's just that we have dynamics and the dynamics required of self-organization to non-equilibrium steady state require some in-the-moment kind of prediction. So where is the sort of the, the higher end anticipatory of dynamics? Well, that, that comes in through Feynman's path integral formulation and thinking not just about the flow or the dynamics of self-organization at this point in time, but trajectories into the future and the probability distributions over those trajectories and particularly the states that act upon the outside that if you like, formally characterize what we do over extended periods of time. So when you bring the path integral uh, formalism to bear 
on these non-equilibrium steady-state distributions, then you can sort of uh, say, what kinds of policies as I move into the future are more likely and which are less likely? And then things get much more interesting and we talk about sort of ambiguity and risk and what the imperatives are for long-term behaviours. And underneath all that, there is an interpretation that I'm really trying to predict or you can interpret this in terms of inferring the most likely paths basically as resting upon a prediction of states of the world in the future conditioned upon a particular sequence of actions or policy. One of the things that I think is very interesting about the free energy formulation is that prediction is half the story. So getting accurate predictions about the future, while very important, is juxtaposed with keeping your options open, keeping a flexible mind, keeping a high entropy uh, model of the world so that as you encounter perhaps new situations, it has the flexibility to adapt more quickly, that incoming information. And that because it's a repeated game, you're not just trying to optimize the very next step only, but the entire trajectory of your existence, if you will. And and that's captured in the free energy principle. But inside the KL divergence, part of that is the entropy of my model of the world. And the larger that is, the lower the free energy is. This interesting interplay. And you also point out in a video too, that when it's this repeated game, it's related in a way to what in other fields is called the exploration versus exploitation kind of trade-off, like in the multi-armed bandit world where I can take an action that's maximally exploitive, but, but I may not learn very much. And then on the other hand, I can take an action that's purely just to learn about the world, but may not achieve much of my other objective. And what I love about that is it explains why we're always so tempted to push the button, why people always want to press the button and see what happens or go out and explore, even if there's no immediate benefit and it has so many connections to things like novelty search and multi-arm banded analysis that it's quite interesting. Yeah, you bring up so many fascinating points there. Yeah, and, and, uh, and robotics, intrinsic motivation in uh, robotics, artificial curiosity in a, in a Schmidt-Hoover-like sense, you know, uh, which itself uh, all comes back down to this minimizing the complexity and paradoxically um, celebrating uncertainty. So, if you allow me, you made so many good points there. I can't resist just highlighting them. First of all, predictions only half the story. Absolutely. I mean, why are we predicting? Well, we're predicting in order to infer what to do next. So the doing, the action, the inactive aspect really becomes a central thing in terms of, well, things that are written into the description like self-organization, how I organize myself, how, what I do. And if you're in data science, that would be basically how do I optimally data mine? Can I find Bayesian optimum design principles written into the formalism, the variation formalism that you know, the free energy principle uh, stands? So I think just saying that perception is great if you're just studying the visual cortex or you know, interpreting some given uh, pixelated image. But the real challenge is really how do you go and take that picture and how do you move your eyes around and sample that information that's going to make much more sense of the world. So it's all in the service of what I'm going to do. You mentioned the, the KL divergence, the, the central role of relative entropies in this sort of variational construct. I, I think that you know, formally that is so important. So a very simple perspective on free energy, which I think is useful certainly for students, is to remind them that the free energy is some expected potential 
some expected utility, if you like, and complemented by the entropy. And in minimising the free energy, you're also trying to maximise the entropy, which seems sometimes counterintuitive. But it is exactly that which is really mandated by things like Occam's principle and and very practically relevant. So if you don't do that, if you don't put that uncertainty into the game, so you don't commit to a very precise explanation for these data, then you're going to run into things like sharp minima and you're going to be searching for resolutions of that in terms of broadening your uncertainty, flattening that free energy landscape to, to try and secure those, those, those flat minima where you can be more reasonably assured that you've got some global minima, say in standard deep learning or, or a machine learning context. You know, that would be a story you could tell just about the composition of, free, of why free energy rests upon entropies and relative entropies. But you took us um, straight to the heart of the sort of uh, deeper in time inference that comes along with the active inference, which is this sort of this implicit imperative to reduce uncertainty that can often be described in terms of responding to salience or epistemic affordance, just saying, if I did that, what would happen? What would I know? What information would I, would I gain? Novelty you mentioned. So technically, what we tend to do is to talk about the resolution of uncertainty or the information gain that is formally described by KL divergence between my beliefs about states of the world with and without those sensory samples or observations that I would get if I did that. So that KL divergence can be applied to unknown states of the world, and that would be driving behaviours like looking over there to make sure that my hypothesis that that was a butterfly or a bird or a candle was the best explanation for these sort of peripheral visual sensations. But you've also got unknowns, for example, in a deep learning scenario, the, the, the connection strengths you know, in the brain, parameters that underwrite our brain connectivity that encode the lawful contingencies and statistical regularities of likelihood mappings or probability transition matrices. So these don't change quickly in time, but they still are equipped with a posterior belief or some some stochastic representation about which you can reduce uncertainty. And then we call that novelty. So if you can get yourself into a situation where you reduce your uncertainty about the contingencies and the parameters of your generative model, then you're responding to their again, an epistemic affordance that is exactly this resolution of uncertainty. Formally, we would write that down as an expected free energy. I don't know if this helps, but one way I find useful to think about this and indeed explain to, 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 to students is uh, free energy is a bound on log evidence, simply the probability of some data under a model of how I thought those data were generated. And you can always split that into accuracy and complexity. So if I was a statistician and I wanted to minimize my physics free energy or maximize my machine learning free energy, which is, of course is just an evidence lower bound of the sort you find in a variational autoencoder, what am I doing? If I decompose the log evidence into accuracy and complexity, what I'm trying to do is minimize the complexity of my accurate expectations. And then we get back to minimum description lengths, the uh, underlie, say, your Kolmogorov-like complexity formulations of your most efficient coding and the like. So you've got this 
way of looking at self-evidencing in the sense of just forming good beliefs of how my data were generated in terms of providing the, the simplest but at most accurate explanations or accounts of the data at hand. So if we come back to this, to the previous discussion about what would happen in the deep future, so I did a deep tree search over all the sequences of moves that I could make, what would the expected accuracy and the expected complexity look like? And if you write that down, they come out as things like risk and ambiguity. So the expected accuracy, or more precisely, the expected inaccuracy, the negative accuracy, the negative log probability of your data under beliefs about their causes becomes ambiguity, becomes the conditional uncertainty, if you like, about the observations if you knew them. And the, the expected complexity becomes risk. Or it has exactly the same form that you'd find in KL control theory or risk-sensitive control in economics. It's just the relative entropy or the KL divergence between what you think will happen if you did that and what a priori you think is going to happen, which normally people treat as a sort of the preferred outcome, the kind of things that a creature or a system or an agent like me would normally encounter. So that ambiguity is exactly the thing that you were talking about, the reason why we push that button or open that door uh, or go on that trip or go into that Google page. You know, the, it is written into, it is, if you like, the homologue of our aspirations for accurate accounts of all the sensory and other data that we have to assimilate when we consider the expectation in the future conditioned on what we'd actually do. We're getting quite close to the centre of the bullseye here, and we're talking about the dichotomy between belief-free and belief-based methods. So you've been sketching out this really interesting idea that we can take uh, subsequent actions by maximising the expectation over a, a, a generative model of uh, states in distribution and subsequent policies. But the alternative is so-called goal-directed behaviour. Now, you said in your papers that goal-directed behaviour is fine for learning kind of basic habitual policies but you cite this wonderful example with an owl you say that an owl doesn't necessarily know where the mouse is in in the field there might be some ambiguity there might be some uncertainty and using a simple goal directed policy the owl would just go straight to the mouse and, and and try and eat the mouse now it's quite interesting to contrast your approach to other forms of let's say bayesian reinforcement learning or traditional stochastic reinforcement learning of course normally there's this value function that needs to be either computed directly in the non stochastic setting using the Bellman equations or, or or some other method. But but your approach is a, is a, a stark departure away from having this value function. Again, you're, you're, you've said everything that I could possibly say. So, so I'll send you on my next lecture tour. That, that, that'll, that'll take the pressure off me. Yeah, no, absolutely. And of course, I forgot to just to highlight this sort of exploitation, exploration dilemma that has dogged 20th century thinking. Of course, that just dissolves in the 21st century because you know, risk and ambiguity, sometimes you can exchange the, the, the terms in this expected free energy formulation uh, and re-express that as an intrinsic um, and extrinsic value where the intrinsic value is something that people in robotics and artificial curiosity would recognise as that sort of epistemic information gain. Uh, part and the extrinsic value is just the expected utility or the expected reward. 
And in minimizing this mixture that just is the, the expected free energy, you, you've got exploration and exploitation solved for free in the right order. So you normally see if there's food in the fridge before you start preparing your, your meal. You don't do it the other way around. <laughs> so that's, that's you know, what you were hinting at in terms of the owl opening its fridge and searching. It's slightly disingenuous of me, I think, to use such a stark contrast dialectic between what is in essence a whole bunch of things predicated on the Bellman optimality principle and contrast that with another way of doing it which is the which is essentially a variational Hamilton's principle of stationary action so the free energy principle inherits from uh, the physics of non-equilibria that you will find from Feynman's path integral formulation um, of quantum electrodynamics right through to Hamilton's equations of, uh, you know, of motion. So there are, these, this is the variational principle that is the first principle that, that we were mentioning before. So the question is, do you choose between variational principles of stationary action or do you go for um, an optimality principles? And in that choice, what's the big commitment you're making? And you said it. You said that the Bellman optimality principle is only fit for purpose if there exists a value function of states that will ensue if I commit to that action. Whereas the variational principles of least action being a path integral of a, an energy and an energy being a log probability of, of a probability distribution immediately tells you that the objective function, if you want to cast it in terms of normative theories of optimization, the objective function is a function of a probability distribution. So it has to be belief-based. If you if read a probability distribution as a Bayesian belief, so if you allow me to talk about beliefs simply as uh, conditional probability distributions in the sense of belief propagation or Bayesian beliefs, then we know that the, uh, the, the from physics, the objective function, the Lyapunov function, the cost function, has to be a functional function of Bayesian beliefs. So that comes back to, to your point, that if you go down the Bellman route, the RL route, the optimal control route, then you are predicating everything on a value function of states. If, on the other hand, you go down a variational or a physics route, then your objective function has to be a functional of beliefs about states. And that's where you get the resolution of uncertainty. That's where searching gets into the mix, because to search is to resolve uncertainty. But uncertainty and surprise and all of these other attributes of belief updating are all attributes of probabilistic beliefs, probability distributions. So you know you have to have a, a function of probability distributions in order to account for sentient behavior. And I would say including goal-directed behavior. Why is that disingenuous? Well, it's disingenuous because, of course, what you can do is take this more general formalism, this variational formalism, and take out of it all the uncertainty and then you can get back to the Bellman optimality principle. So really, there's not a dialectic here. It's just that the Bellman optimality principle deals with a special but very ubiquitous and pragmatically very important case, 
where you can discount various sources of uncertainty. So common examples here, let's ignore the partially observed aspect of a problem. Let's assume that our observations tell us everything we need to know about latent states causing data or latent states of the plant that I'm trying to, trying to control. So that takes ambiguity out of the expected free energy before, before you do anything. What are you left with? Well, you're left with the expected risk. What's the, that's the expected complexity. So that's just a probabilistic measure, a relative entropy measure of the distance probabilistically between your prior preferences, your goals, your, your rewarding states, uh, and what you think will happen. So if you say, look, now let's assume for simplicity that it doesn't matter every which way that I can do this, the uncertainty about what's going to happen is not going to change. That means that that risk now doesn't play any role anymore other than to um, score the expected um, utility or the expected log of your prior preferences. That just is Bayes' decision theory. So you can get quite easily back to what was a deliberate but maliciously engineered dichotomy. You can sort of dismiss that just by acknowledging that you only need to worry about uncertainty in epistemics when you put uncertainty and not knowing into the mix. I'd like to I'd like to explore that as you put it maliciously engineered false dichotomy uh, a little bit further but in a different context uh, it's one of the Markov blanket for example you were with uh, Sean Carroll not long ago and I think he asked uh, does a hurricane have a Markov blanket and and he said well no it doesn't and that's that's quite annoying actually that it doesn't have a or maybe the eternal flame is sort of the the nemesis because it doesn't we get to this, when is a pile of sand, a pile of sand? What I'm curious about is, does the concept of a Markov blanket for the purposes of uh, contemplating the free energy principle, can it be a fuzzy Markov blanket? So, you know, just for an inanimate example, I can imagine a Markov blanket around the moon and one around the earth, but on the other hand, they gravitationally interact. But I don't think that precludes me from thinking about dimensions of the free energy principle, even if even if there are interactions that maybe I, that pierce the boundary, if you will. But still, if it's enough of a boundary, enough of a blanket, if you will, I can still think about in useful ways. Is that true? I mean, do we really need an exact Markov blanket or is it flexible enough that it can be quite a fuzzy boundary? It's a Excellent question. And the honest answer is I, I don't really know at this stage. But what is known, uh, and in not knowing, I mean that in a constant way, that this is a future challenge I think people will contend with in the next few years. And I'll, and I'll try to explain why that's important from my perspective. So the, the crisp and clear consequences of having a Markov blanket is when one unpacks it right through to the path integral formulation, the implications for the good trajectories in terms of minimizing expected free energy really do rest upon there being a well-defined Markov blanket, which, as you say, is the mechanism that allows for these connections and influences at a distance that would keep the moon in orbit around the earth for example whilst at the same time accommodating the conditional independences that enable me to distinguish the moon from something else so 
in an idealized formulation, the, the Markov blanket exists at non-equilibrium steady state. So it exists in eternity in a very crisp and well-defined way that there are specific conditional independences that allow for a vicarious coupling between the inside and the outside. So it's the device that gets you out of 20th century equilibrium physics, that we're not talking about closed systems anymore. We're talking about uh, non-equilibrium steady states. So we're, we're really in the sort of the things that people like Sean Carroll and a lot of other people are contending with at the moment, and the physics of open systems and self-organizing systems. And the Markov planket plays an incredible, incredibly crucial role here in demarcating the edge of the system, as it were, that allows you to identify something. So anything has to have a Markov blanket, strictly speaking, for a particular uh, period of time. Just as an aside, what happens when you do that is stuff on the inside of the Markov blanket has to have a kind of synchrony with stuff on the outside. And in virtue of those conditional dependencies that stipulatively define the Markov blanket, you can now treat the internal states as parameterizing probability distributions or belief distributions about external states. So there's quite a fundamental bit of information geometry that you bring to the table when you have a Markov blanket, that suddenly you can interpret the machinations on the inside in your computer or your variational autoencoder or your brain as having beliefs of a Bayesian sort about what caused these data, what's going on the outside. So that's absolutely crucial for the whole sort of active inference and certainly representational or realist or anti-realist sort of philosophical interpretations. So the Markov blanket is absolutely central. Everything inherits from the Markov blanket. So everything else was in play before. We have the Fokker-Planck equation, we have the Schrodinger wave equation, we have variational principles of, of, of stationary action and pathological formulations. That's all there. All you need to do is to drop the Markov blanket in and then you get active inference. So to move on to your more challenging question, does a hurricane or the eternal flame have a Markov blanket? Well, strictly speaking, no, it doesn't, because you've got this fuzzy leaking. It is, from the point of view of somebody who's wanted to simplify things as a physicist, very irritating. But of course, it's also incredibly important and challenging. So where would you go to try and understand these fluctuating blankets where you have exchanges? So just technically, you've got external states, and then you've got blanket states that intervene between the internal states and the external states. And yet, with something like a candle flame or a hurricane, you seem to have this exchange that what was once an external state becomes in a blanket state, and what was once a blanket state becomes an external state. And I worry about this every time I cut my fingernails or have my hair cut. <laughs> At what point did my Markov blanket become an external state? So there's clearly, there's clearly a bit of work to be done mathematically to accommodate Markov blankets as themselves dynamical and random objects. My guess is that you're going to probably go back to the work of Urkoff, who was the, sort of one of the key intellectual architects of ergotisty and ergodic theory. And he was at one point preoccupied by the notion of wandering sets. So if we think of the Markov blanket as a partition of all the states of the universe into lots and lots of particles that comprise the internal states and their Markov blankets. And if you consider that partition into particles as a partitioning into subsets, and then you bring 
wandering sets into play, you can now start to see a mechanics and a mathematics where you do actually can now actually explain things like hurricanes and candles. And just for interest, uh, literally a couple of weeks ago, there was a nice um, paper in Frontiers treating the biosphere as a Markov blanket. So, you know, the, there is practical and important sort of, you know, pressures in order to formalise what are the Markov blankets of these large-scale structures. And my guess is that the, the notion of wandering sets and the timescales over which internal states exchange with external states and internal states, external states exchange with blanket states are going to be are, are going to be an important issue. And I say that because, of course, we develop what point when I am born and what point am I died? Does my can I what happens to my Markov blanket? Reproduction, 3D printers printing themselves. Is a species of 3D printers one big Markov blanket? Or do, do I have to right. drill down and just say Markov blanket only really exists for the lifetime of a 3D printer? So all of these issues I think speak to exactly what you're drilling down on, which is how can you accommodate fluctuations and if you like physics of non-equilibria not of states of a universe but of the blanket or the partitions that define the you know, the markov blankets if we can imagine into the future maybe and, and if in the spirit of the free energy principle we maintain uncertainty about the free energy principle it may be the case that as we extend it to say wandering sets with wandering points. We may develop a mathematics of more of a distance metric. This cloud of points is currently this distance from a particular wandering point and, and they're orbiting around and there may be some dynamics in there. And then if we follow a similar analysis, we might end up back at the free energy principle plus another term, for example. Like there may be an extra term over there, which could be important. Would that be kind of a fair speculation of what might happen? Well, yeah, that's very clever. Yes, uh, yeah. So I often say in moments of vanity and pride that the free energy principle is one of the very few principles that conforms to itself. It's trying to provide a, an accurate but minimally complex explanation for everything. And the only other thing that I know that conforms to itself is the principle of natural selection in the sense that the theories of natural selection themselves evolved Parian third world. And in that sense, this notion that the free energy principle should accommodate a judicious amount of uncertainty about itself is absolutely right. Yeah, that's a very, very clever observation. In terms of the form, I think that's probably right as well. I mean, you're asking me to think about you know, where we might be in, in, a, in, in, say, 10 years' time. And so this is just hand-waving. But certainly one could imagine variational principles of stationary action applied not to probability distributions over states, but probability distributions over, over partitions uh, and sets and getting into some things like category theory and the like. So one can see a sketch or an image of, of, of the future kind of maths that, that might be that might conserve the relatively simple principles that underwrite the free energy principle, but now applied at sort of one level up, as it were. So not to the actual system itself, but to the probabilistic configurations and the partitions that define that principle. If I can zoom out a little bit here. So the free energy principle is a lot about the idea of we want to gain information to create a better, more accurate model of the world around us. 
And But there are situations in game theory and decision theory where that's actually not fitness enhancing. So a few examples here, you might not want to learn the face of your kidnapper because he's more likely to kill you. And there's the other thing where you might, so this is an information you don't want to gain. And sometimes it's also useful to have false beliefs. For example, it can be useful to think you're smarter than you actually are or more confident than you actually are because that will help you in social situations. Yeah, that's a fascinating area. And I, I see those, those those sort of themes in many different context, wishful thinking, deliberately avoiding certain sources of information, not wanting to open a letter that tells you whether you've passed your exams or a letter from the doctor that contains your the results of your um, recent scan for cancer, for example. There, there are things that we don't want to know. So we're talking about very metacognitive things. In a sense that uh, I've never heard that before about not wanting to know the face of your, your kidnapper. But that's a, a beautiful example. It really does tell you that objective functions have to be about beliefs and the consequences of belief states, not states of the world. So if there's one example that tells you you're not going to serve up with the Bellman optimality principle, that's going to be it. But it also tells you that many of these real world problems have to contend with the fact that the kind of external states that you are dealing with are composed of sentient creatures like you and that they also have beliefs. So now you get into the game of putting lots of active inference agents together and multi-agent scenarios and how you infer the degree of sophistication with which you infer the intentions of others and the belief states of others. And all, all that gets into these very deep and enriched generative models that themselves now represent the belief states of other active inference, uh, your optimization machines, uh, as it were. One other level, I think that you can understand these sometimes paradoxical or counterintuitive expressions of optimality is just to acknowledge that the whole of the Bayesian brain hypothesis, the whole basis of indeed free energy principle is a statement about prior beliefs. And as such, prior beliefs are going to be in the context of self-evidencing, necessarily optimistic. So if you remember before, I was reading prior beliefs about the outcomes consequent on a behavior as preferences. And the only reason I say preferences is because if those are the kind of states that I typically find myself in, so if I'm a physicist, those the attracting set of my non-equilibrium steady state, then it looks as if I will always be working towards these prior states. So they look literally, mathematically attracting in the sense of being an attracting set, but also psychologically attractive and valuable, and therefore the preferred states that I work towards. So baked into a Bayesian reading of the information theoretic imperatives for choice is an optimism. You're always moving towards or trying to solicit evidence that confirms that you are an eternal, immortal, well-loved, warm creature. So it has to be like that. It can't be any other way. Manifestations of, of that I always find appealing because they're just statements of the fact it couldn't be any other way. I have to believe myself to be an expert in this or very proficient in that in order to realise those preferred fantasies through action to actually secure the evidence that, yes, I am that kind of thing. 
without those priors, without those optimistic priors, you would not get the kind of act of inference that underwrites our existence to come back you know, to some of the phrases that, that, that Tim was using to introduce the free energy. We had this very interesting point from Connor about there may be gain theoretic pressures, let's say, to drive down accuracy in, in some sense. There could also be, and I'm not sure if this strays outside of the free energy principle or not, but implementation factors. So the lesson of back to Maxwell's demons and, and all the very sophisticated kind of information engine analysis that people have done from then until now has shown that the actual recording and computation of information is an entropic process. It, it generates entropy. And so even though the free energy principle does have a term in there, which is the, the entropy of my model per se, I'm not sure if that captures the entropy associated, and I mean the, the thermodynamic entropy, if you will, associated with actually maintaining and operating that model. So it may be the case, for example, that you reach a point where increasing my intelligence a little bit more costs me much more to operate and maintain than it actually buys me an improved accuracy, for example. Where do you see that trade-off does or doesn't fit into the free energy principle? I think the trade-off fits very neatly. In fact, you could say it was, you know, in large part constituent um, of the free energy principle in the following sense. And again, you preempted everything that I might have said about this, but I'll say it again. So <clears throat> the complexity that we were talking about. So if you recall, log evidence and any associated bounds like free energy or an elbow, an evidence low bound in machine learning can be written as a as the accuracy minus the complexity. And the complexity is just the divergence between your posterior and your prior belief distributions. Now that is a complexity cost. It's also exactly the, the cost that underwrites uh, Solonoff and universal computation, computational formulations of generalized or universal intelligence. It is the thing that drives compression in predictive coding or engineering applications of it. It is the thing that Jürgen Smithuber would emphasize if he were uh, part of our conversation, that sort of complexity minimization. So that is a really and possibly the more important part of the free energy. The accuracy is well understood, but doing it in a minimally complex and a minimally maximally compressed way, that, that, that's the heart of it. That's important because right. by Landauer's principle and the Janinsky equality, that also directly one-to-one -one dictates the number of joules that you will expend in belief updating when you move from your prior to the posterior. So recall the complexity is just the relative entropy between the prior and the posterior. It is de the degree to which you change your mind in the face of this new data or this new sensory evidence. And therefore, is exactly the changing or the erasure of bits of information that can be measured in NATS, in natural units, if using natural logarithms, that via Landauer's principle has an exact thermodynamic cost in joules. So when we're talking about informationally efficient, complexity minimizing schemes, compression schemes, from my perspective, anything that minimizes variational free energy or belief updating uh, that minimizes variational free energy, you are also exactly talking about the most efficient way of doing it thermodynamically. So what that means is, if you want to build the best kind of computer, one simple way of scoring how good your computer is, is to take two machines that have the same accuracy, 
And the one that uses less electricity is the best one. And that will also, by definition, provide the least complex um, account and thereby minimise its, uh, its free energy. So I think that's a really important practical observation that what we're aspiring to here are really cheap and cheerful machines that can that can do do their sort of their synthesis. Just to make it a bit more concrete, what I'm wondering is in the free energy principle term with the complexity, because I completely agree and get the point that's the crux, that's the most important term. I'm wondering if maybe there should be a multiplier there, like an alpha, something like a Boltzmann constant that allows me to tweak the relative balance between accuracy and complexity. Yeah, oh, a temperature parameter. Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, there are two answers to that question. First of all, absolutely not. The whole the whole point of dissolving that exploration exploitation dilemma. The whole point of putting the information gain in the same space and in the same currency and on the same footing as your log prior preferences, your reward, your utility, your Bellman esque like imperatives is that there is a seamless exchange in terms of NATs, natural units, between the decomposition of your expected free energy in terms of this intrinsic value and this extrinsic utilitarian pragmatic value. One of the benefits of removing that alpha or beta or temperature coefficient on the, the complexity versus the, the accuracy, that for the expected free energy now becomes risk and ambiguity is that now you can talk about reward in terms of NATs, you can talk about how rewarding information is because they're just some arbitrary carving up of a single expression, the expected free energy. That seems to me important because that is, if you like, the sort of in terms of a dimensional or unitary unit analysis, that is a thing that truly does dissolve the exploration exploitation dilemma and puts the value of information alongside the value of a money or the value of a, a fruit drop if you're doing animal experiments. So absolutely not. You really want to totally avoid any temptation to start adding ad hoc hyperparameters like temperature to this beautiful construct, which explains everything. The other answer is absolutely yes. Um, but in order to in order to um, acknowledge that if you're just trying to explain the necessary properties, dynamics of systems that self-organize to some non-equilibrium steady state. You are saying nothing about the nature of that steady state other than it is at steady state. So it could be very high entropy steady state, it could be very low entropy steady state, it could be very hot, it could be very cold. You haven't really committed to any kind of uh, steady state, which means that it's slightly disingenuous to say that the imperative for everything is to minimize, say, a free energy functional. It's not. That's why I very carefully said Hamilton's principle of stationary action is just keeping it flat at steady state. It could be very high, it could be very low. And that starts to beg the question, what kinds of steady states or non-equilibria are we really interested in simulating, reproducing, describing? And if you get under the hood in terms of the relative entropies and the mutual informations that, that shape these steady states, and in particular, the, the distributions over this Markovian partition into inside and outside and the blanket states, it turns out that one important attribute or description of the state 
depends upon the way in which the active states increase the mutual information between the internal and the external. And if you parameterize up with a particular parameter, and we will call it alpha as a nod to your question, then suddenly you really do need this alpha. And this alpha gets in exactly as you say, as a knob on the expected complexity versus the expected accuracy or ambiguity. So what that means is in a more general formulation of the, of the free energy principle, or certainly its application to understanding active inference, there would be this extra parameter that really tells you you're dealing with systems that are exquisitely structured in the sense that they are that they occupy a very small number of states they could occupy in a particular way that is active, that, that they actively construct their mutual information between the inside and the outside. At the moment, that's not in the literature. So there are ongoing debates amongst the younger people who love the maths of this about whether we just need a generic KL divergence or whether we need to exclude bits to get to expected free energy in by acknowledging there are different kinds of non-equilibrium steady states and that in so doing you have to really think about the the relative importance for this steady state of technically the risk and the ambiguity and the sensory entropy so that's again that's a bit of an open question which i'm hoping will be resolved in about a year's time at which point your alpha will occur and i'll try to call it alpha in your honor awesome <laughs> maybe i should have gone with omega that way it's the last parameter we ever need but thank uh, you appreciate it absolutely fascinating there's been a lot of emphasis on a single all-encompassing learning principle this grand unified theory of the brain or indeed any system now um i've been speaking to one of our friends on the show uh, he's, he's given us two questions uh, this guy is dr hari valpola he's a, an applied theoretical neuroscientist and he's the ceo of curious ai which is a reinforcement uh, learning based startup and um he's a very accomplished uh, scientist actually and and he says it does make sense to claim that there's a unified cortical algorithm. And anatomically, the cortex is very uniform. And although there are adaptations to specific tasks, they seem to be variations of a single unified template. And in biology, function follows form. However, he says that to claim that everything follows from free energy minimization is just overly simplistic in his view. He says it's um, obvious that for the cortex, goal-orientated learning and, and perception is crucially important. He says the cortex isn't just learning and perceiving all the structure and information it receives from the sensors. Learning is heavily modulated by task demand and attention, and so is perception itself. So he gives this example. He says, if you take a young child around nine months old, the critical period for learning the phonemes of your mother tongue, and you play some speech from the radio, the result is nothing. But if you play the same speech during a social interaction, the child will learn to discriminate uh, the phonemes in the speech. I think it's an excellent observation. And it takes us into a, a sort of world which we haven't really been discussing so far, which is uh, the different flavours of free energy minimization and how it might be manifest. And so just coming back to the point that structure matters, structures of the brain being very finely attuned to and adapted to the context in which they're, they're making their inferences, one would normally cast that in terms of structure learning. If I was a statistician, there are at least three, if not four levels of maximizing model evidence, i.e. minimizing variation-free energy. 
also known as marginal likelihood. I can make inferences to reduce my uncertainty about states that change with time. I can do learning, which is reducing uncertainty or increasing the marginal likelihood of the parameters of my generative model. I could also think about the hyperparameters that encode the usually cast in terms of precision or negentropy of various distributions. And that, interestingly, speaks to ignoring things that we we're talking about previously with Connor. Sometimes it's best to ignore in a base optimal sense if you've got very inconsistent and incompatible information. Uh, that's you know, one base optimal explanation for ignoring. And that speaks to a sort of intermediate temporal scale of free energy minimization. But the one I want to get to beyond that is structure learning, also known as Bayesian model selection. So if I was a statistician, I wanted to score the quality of my generative model, my hypothesis, my convolution model, whatever it was, then I would score it with a free energy approximation or bound on the marginal likelihood or the model evidence. And then I take another model, another hypothesis, and I would compare the adequacy of these two hypotheses using a procedure called Bayesian model comparison. And that is formally identical to choosing the hypothesis with the least free energy. So the free energy scoring the evidence for this hypothesis or that hypothesis. So you have now a mathematical description of what in cognitive science would be known as structure learning, optimizing the very structure of your model. Does it have three layers? Is my deep network fit for purpose? Should I add another layer? How many units do I have in each layer? Do I have a more sparse connectivity? Do I use linear rectifying? All of these structural aspects can, in principle, be evaluated in terms of the, the free energy or the marginal or the underlying marginal likelihood or the evidence. So you have this world of structure learning. Now, that world itself can proceed at different timescales. It can uh, proceed in terms of the development of a particular architecture or phenotype. If you're a developmental psychologist, you would understand this structure learning from a neurodevelopmental point of view as the brain grows, experience-dependent learning that is driven or can be at least described by free energy minimization or self-evidencing or maximizing model evidence, incre increasing through the addition of different connections and different cortical layers and cortical areas or bringing them online through changes in connectivity that can actually progress right through until uh, the early 20s in your development. You would see that, or you could describe that in terms of structure learning over somatic time. But the, exactly the same principles apply at an evolutionary timescale. So this notion of free energy minimization as Bayesian model selection speaks to a simple understanding of evolution or as nature's way of doing natural Bayesian model selection, i.e. natural selection, where you operationally associate the adaptive fitness with the probability this phenotype exists, which is just the evidence that it is there, the probability of finding that phenotype in place. And I should also say that all of these different expressions of free energy minimization at different spatial and temporal scales are all exactly consistent with some of the fundaments of cybernetics and inception of theories of self-organization, such as, for example, the good regulator theorem. You know, that it is, on some reading, provably true that for any system or agent to regulate its environment, it has to embody or be a good model 
of that environment, what does that mean? Its structure must somehow recapitulate the structure of the environment generating that it has to control or it has to engage with. So what does that tell you? It tells you that the, the structure, including all those canonical microcircuits, including those visual hierarchies of our brains, for example, or the multiple hierarchical layers in a, in a, in a deep neural network, have to be there if it is the case that the world that they're trying to model has a deep structure, if things are hierarchically generated. And we know that yeah. to be the case for us because most of our world is caused by other creatures like us, as we're currently witnessing. So we know that there is, that there is um, a hierarchical and dynamical aspect to it where the hierarchy, say, interpersonal interactions transcends just individuals, but sort of groups of people, conspecifics, families, societies, political affiliations, theological affiliations, and or geographical hierarchical structure. So it is hardly unsurprising that the delicate, deep, hierarchically structured connectivity we find in a brain and in a variational autoencoder is a natural thing that has emerged from the evolution of these architectures that all are conforming with the principle of free energy minimization. It, it really resonates with a lot of the things that we've been speaking about on uh, on our podcast here, because in machine learning, we, of course, there, there are inductive priors built into models. Even a neural network has this kind of hierarchical organization, which is an inductive prior. But we've spoken a lot about meta learning as well. And th this thing that you're saying that there's a structurally relevant inductive pathway, which could be learned. But the last question from Hari is um, he wants to know about the cerebellum, for example. He said there's plenty of evidence that it learns by supervised learning and can perfectly well handle regular task without any models and he cites innate reflexes which train a complex feed forward controller without any internal models i mean as a bit of a side thing here val polo is is in a way implying that the free energy principle is is, is kind of unsupervised that's the way he's talking about it. which there might be some truth to that but we'll come back to that but he also cites the basal ganglia the, the hippocampus the amygdala and the superior colliculus each of them learns and their learning algorithms definitely don't seem to have much to do with the free energy minimization in his opinion opinion. Um, he says that the basal ganglia is a kind of reinforcement learning and the hippocampus is a one-shot learning and the amygdala and the superior colliculus are supervised learning for specific tasks. And this is super interesting, right? Because he cites Kahneman's system one and system two of thinking. Yeah, there's this famous test where if you give monkeys a sequence of cards with a hidden pattern on, uh, which need to be classified into two classes, humans suddenly click they see the hidden rule because their system two kicks in and and they start getting a hundred percent accuracy very quickly but you don't see that with monkeys so valpola was saying that he doesn't see how that phenomenon could be explained by the free energy principle right again a whole raft of really interesting points there all of those things can um, be explained by the free energy principle, and indeed, there's, there's a small literature on all of those things. Uh, so if people are interested, you can get into the literature. I have to say, of course, the literature may not be the familiar literature for people in machine learning. It's really, <clears throat> he's asking some fundamental questions about functional anatomy, and probably more specifically, the computational anatomy that we can ascribe to various structures and hierarchies and connectomes in the brain. So, for example, recent thinking about the cerebellum is that it plays the role of actually a supervisor. So it may well be the case that the cerebellum plays a role in the amortization of carefully acquired 
skilled movements that become increasingly skilled as the cerebellum watches the cortex, and in particular the premotor cortex, supplementary motor area, and the motor cortex per se, hierarchically exchange messages, all prescribing those predictions for that reflexive kind of predictive coding we're talking about before that are delivered to the spinal cord and the motor reflex arcs. But of course, that sort of low-level description of motor control does rest upon this sort of deeply structured and informed hierarchy of predicting what am I going to do next. But of course, the cerebellum can watch that. It can watch the cortex learning how to compose particular movements. And if it can therefore learn how to do that, then it can amortize it. So I'm, I'm assuming that we all know what amortization is. Um, but what I, what I mean here is that we can offset or defer the cost of the Bayesian belief updating that we've talked about before is entails a computational complexity and therefore also a thermodynamic cost by actually hardwiring and learning the mappings from certain beliefs to, to certain sort of predictions, say, that drive motor reflexes. In that sense, the cerebellum can, I think, be very usefully understood in terms of being involved in supervised learning, but I'd actually turn it on its head and basically say it's been supervised by the cortex, but in a way that allows the cerebellum to tell the cortex, well, normally you do it like that. Why don't you just do it quickly and efficiently and bake in those mappings without having to worry about the, the actual belief updating and converging to dynamically on a gradient flow to converging to a free energy minimum. And that story, I think, can also be used to explain the particular role of, say, the dorsal and ventral striatum and the basal ganglia in arbitrating between whether we do a sort of system one versus a system. Do we think about stuff? Do we do our belief updating and a bit of planning as inference? Or do we just do what we've always done, habitually respond quickly and efficiently? by harnessing something that has already been amortized. And that, I think, is a really interesting interpretation of habitization versus deliberative thinking, which from the point of view of a neuroscientist would be the equivalent of system one versus, versus system two. In that sort of edge between machine learning and reinforcement learning, sometimes referred to as model-free versus model-based, um, I would not subscribe to that in the sense that the, the, the habit has to be learned from the, the good old-fashioned belief updating and learning. You can't, you're not given habits, you're given reflexes, but to learn a habit, to learn, this is the kind of thing that I usually do in this situation. And if I just do it, I can dispense with the computational cost, thereby minimizing the pathological free energy uh, by doing the habit. I notice I've slipped in there that because it's a, a principle of least action that entails a path integral. So the amount of time it takes to minimize your free energy or get to your conclusion matters, which means you have to do it quickly. To minimize the action, you've got to do it quickly, which means there's a natural pressure to habitize and amortize in the service of minimizing free energy. And I could go on in terms of telling you what I know about the functional anatomy of the amygdala, but perhaps it's best just to say that there's a glorious game to be played here. And in fact, it's, it's the bread and butter of a jobbing neuroscientist, certainly a systems neuroscientist, to understand the computational architectures and the nature of message passing implied by either belief updating or predictive coding or variational message passing 
how it is enacted physiologically on a neuroanatomy that has a deep structure. So this is our job. And, and it really started scratching the surface in the past decades with brain imaging and other, other tools at our disposal. This is very machine learning biased. I'm not sure if you're familiar with this. Recently, there has been a paper that says that predictive coding can approximate backpropagation in arbitrary graphs. Do you have any take on this? Yes, it is. Uh, I'm sure a friend of mine has, has contributed to that. Yeah. Yes, no, absolutely. So by coincidence, I think we're having a, a, a Neurips workshop on Saturday that sort of affords different perspectives on backprop. I have to say, from my perspective, you, you, that's completely unsurprising. And if there's any sense that prop has been demeaned as something which is not you know, absolutely central to, to everything, then I think that's probably wrong. So from my perspective, it is invariably the case that the gradients with respect to anything of variation-free energy can be written down as an, a prediction error. Which means that if you believe that the universe of interesting things that basically is performing a gradient flow on a variational-free energy functional, then you also believe that they are, via the chain rule, minimizing their prediction error. So it, for me, backprop is just, if you like, a, a nice linearized chain rule-esque way statement of things that work flow on free energy gradients that can always be written down with a backpropagation of prediction errors. It doesn't surprise me in the slightest that predictive coding belongs to this class of algorithm, as does backpropagation of errors. And I would actually uh, submit everything that works should be, should be described in, in, along those lines. I think that's one of the first times that neuroscientists actually say something positive about backprop. So that's really fascinating. So I have a second question, and that is, in your own personal opinion, what has been the most interesting progress in systems neuroscience you've seen since you first proposed the free energy principle, whether it's directly related to it or not? Standing back from a non-personal point of view, you, you know, the, the whole pragmatic turn towards embodiment that we've seen at the turn of the century in, in, in cognitive science has really been a, a very big thing that has been underwritten and also has been lent momentum by theoreticians like ourselves. Within that, the role of predictive processing, that's become a meme now. So you can't write a paper in cognitive neuroscience now without a nod to predictive processing at some level of an inactive, an embodied, situated, contextualized sort. So that's been a slow and really important shift, which is presenting all sorts of really interesting issues. In terms of exciting developments in the neurosciences, an increasing quest for understanding the nature of these epistemic affordances which drive us, and in particular in terms of social neuroscience, eco-niche construction, communication with others, and how we forage for information. You know, that, that seems to be in the context of usually social interactions, also touching upon an understanding of feelings and emotion and how resolving uncertainty about bodily states, in my world, that will be interceptive inference, gets into this game as an integral part of these deep hierarchical models that try to explain everything. What role do literally gut feelings have in my propositional beliefs about where I am or who I am and how I should be behaving. So challenging questions that are now starting to address key aspects of intelligence from the point of view of 
neuroscience, such as the emergence of selfhood and what underpins it, and self in relation to others. So we're now talking about cultural eco-niche construction and multi-agent interactions. So that's been very exciting. So I guess maybe to, to end the show, I'd like to ask you on potentially a controversial question. I don't know. I've been trying to find your official answer on this, and I haven't been able to find it. But if we take for granted that the free energy principle explains a great deal about how certain systems of the kind we've been elucidating will function, does it explain the origin of those systems? So does the free energy principle, for example, have anything to say about abiogenesis on Earth, on the origin of life on Earth, that first spark that created systems which can then follow a trajectory guided by the free energy principle? Or is that outside of its scope? I'm sorry to add on a deflationary note, but I'm afraid it's outside of its scope. I say that sort of in, in, in a rigorous way, because remember, all of the interesting math and all this sort of physics of sentience, all this Bayesian mechanics, all inherits from the assumption of a non-equilibrium steady state uh, that, that entails a Markov blanket. As such, it's only about steady states. It's not where that steady state came from. So there's lots of there are lots of really interesting questions. There's a great paper by Kate Jeffries, and there's lots of work by people at, the, um, at Los Alamos and around the world, trying to say, is it almost unavoidable that we will end up with these deeply structured, delicate Markov blanketed systems that become increasingly rich and have longer and longer information lengths and more itinerant dynamics as the universe unfolds. It would be great to know the answer to that and to have a tractable mathematical formulation of that. I'm afraid though that the free energy principle in its vanilla form as it currently stands does not give you that. No, all it says is if that thing has evolved, this is the property, these are the properties that it must possess. But at least it can tell us we should continue exploring and looking around to address that uncertainty. <laughs> yes, oh, yes, of course. So better free energy principle. <laughs> Professor Friston, thank you very much for joining us this evening. It's been an absolute honor to have you on the show. It's been wonderful talking to you. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you Goodbye. so much. Thank it's you. truly a pleasure. Thank you very much for your questions. They're very informed questions. I got a sense you knew the answers before you asked them. but <laughs> That's how I felt. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I'm going to be honest with you. After talking to him myself, I think he has a very intuitive understanding of very deep topics and a massive depth of knowledge. And therefore, when he tries to communicate that, I think he just what's the right way to say this? He he leaves behind a trail that's a little bit hard for us to follow because he's just moving at a very kind of deep and fast rate, in my opinion. He was trying to help us understand. He just he operated on such a high level that it's not always easy to follow. Tell him that that's just the result of externalized intelligence. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <of course. laughs> oh, man. You, you might get your alpha constant. <laughs> I would have called it something like Kappa after my first name. Alpha's good. I mean, start with the first one. Like, why alpha's, Why do we need to go? Alpha's to, good. It's the maximally ambiguous answer that still fits the data. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I When I, at this hedge fund I worked at, we had a, a problem one day and lost a couple million dollars or something. Not me personally, but the fund. And we, uh, we called up one of the guys who maintains our market data feeds. And we're like, so was the ticker that had the problem today the NASDAQ ticker or the NICE ticker? 
And he goes, yes. <laughs> and we're like, uh, it's not a yes or no question. So that was kind of an answer like from, from Kristen there. It's like, do we need alpha? You know, no. And yes. <laughs> anyway, we really hope you've enjoyed the episode today. We've had so much fun making it. Remember to like, comment, and subscribe. We love reading your comments and we'll see you back next week.